If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1, where we're continuing our study through John's Gospel, a series entitled Known. And again today, we'll see why I chose that title for this series through John's Gospel. But as you're turning, I want to take you back to a question I posed a couple of weeks ago when I asked, how much of God do you want in your life? And I think pretty much we kind of said then, as much as we can get, right? Probably that answer hasn't changed much. So thinking about that, I want to ask a follow-up question and say, then how big is your container? If I want as much of God as I can get in my life, then how big is your container? Let me explain what I'm talking about. One day there was a king who issued an edict that every person in his kingdom had to bring a container to him in his palace with a gift inside. And you can imagine that there was some murmuring, there was some complaining and some grumbling about this self-centered, pompous king who would put this extra weight upon his people that now they have to come and bring him some gift in a container. So the appointed day arrived and one by one people began to bring their gifts and present them to the king. And one by one they were shocked to hear the king say, I really didn't want a gift. What I really wanted to do was bless you, the people of my kingdom. And so what I want you to do is to take the container that you brought with your gift for me and I want you to go into my treasury and take home as much gold or any precious jewels as you can fit into your container. Now what do you think the number one thought that went through people's mind was that day when they heard that? Man, I wish I'd brought a bigger container. Yeah, that's exactly right, because many of them, because there hadn't been any specifics on the size of the container or the value of the gift, uh, had just barely skirted by with the bare minimum to be able to follow the king's command. So what I'm talking about this morning when I say, how big is your container, is not a physical container. I mean, how much of God do you want in your life? So how much of your life Are you giving and are you surrendering to God so that he can fill it up with himself? What areas, what components, what parts of your life are you surrendering and laying on the altar before God to say, God, this is yours. I am yours in this area. I give this totally to you so that God can fill it up with himself. This morning, we're going to see this truth. God's grace multiplies the more we know and experience Christ. God's grace multiplies the more we know and the more we experience Christ. And I've been praying all week that God would help me convey how incredibly overwhelming this truth is, not just in John's gospel and the verses we'll see today, but all throughout the Bible. And I'm trusting that God will answer that prayer so that we can leave today knowing that the only thing limiting, the only thing limiting God's grace, God's presence, God's power uh, in our lives is us. We are the only limiting factor in God fully pouring himself into our lives. The only thing that God won't do in your life is force your obedience to him. He will not force you 
to obey him. So it is your choice and my choice as to whether or not we will believe him and we will receive all that he is capable of and all that God desires to pour into our lives. So let's look at these exciting words in John chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. John wraps up his prologue, this incredible description of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And he says this in verse 16, and from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. God's grace multiplies. John writes and said, from his Fullness. The fullness he's talking about here, the, the his that he's talking of, is Jesus Christ. And we've already established that Jesus Christ is the exact same as he is equal to Jesus is fully God. Colossians 2 uh, affirms the same thing. It says, for in him, meaning for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ who has filled us because of a relationship with him when we place our faith and our trust in him. And in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are raised and we are seated with Christ. And Paul says for this reason, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Amazing words about God's power, his fullness in Christ that's given to us when we come to Jesus Christ and place our faith and our trust in him. So you guys tell me, seeing these verses, seeing these words from scripture, how full is God? You tell me, how full is God? I mean, I want you to be honest with yourself in this moment as I ask you, is there a part of you, not, not mentally, because we all in our minds, we give the church answer, well, well, nothing's impossible with God. God can do all things. We, we, we say that up here. But in your heart, in your spirit, maybe in your emotions or, or, or in your attitudes and, and your actions, is there a part of you that says, God can't do that God won't do that in my life. Or or for some reason, God isn't doing that in my life, which means he doesn't care for me. He's not concerned about me. Is there this part of you where your mind says yes, but does your heart believe it? Have your emotions been submitted to the truth of God's word? Are your actions... And your attitudes coming in line with what's in Scripture. Are you living under this authority and these promises in your life? Because I want to ask you, why can't God do that in your life? Why won't he do whatever you're speaking of in your life? John says we have received from what? From his fullness. And how full is God? I mean, what in this passage tells you that God can't or won't do something in your life? There is nothing that I see that says God can't do this in your life. 
the way I read not just this passage, but the Bible says if you earnestly seek God and if you walk in relationship with Him and you walk in close fellowship with God, God is sufficient to do anything and everything that He wants to, that He desires to do, that needs to be done in your life. There is nothing limited in God. And we've got to believe that. And it changes what we do. It changes what we think. It changes how we feel. Not always in the beginning, but when we submit those feelings and those attitudes and those desires to the authority of Scripture, then God brings us to where those things become a very real experience in our lives. But we've got to bring those to God. You know, and doing this may require some some steps of faith on your part. It may require some effort on your part where you put into practice the commands of what God has called you to do. You may need to get serious about prayer over some things in your life and not just talking about prayer saying, yeah, I know I need to pray about that, but actually making time and praying about that and calling people and having them pray about those things with you. It may mean that you need to invest in some relationships. It may mean you need to apologize and seek forgiveness in some relationships. It may mean you need to repent of some sin in your life to bring these things to God, to live under the authority of his word. But, and in doing these things, God may show you that you don't need what you think you need. You ever been there before? God changes your, your wants and your desires. You thought you needed something, and over time, God says, no, 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 you're asking for the wrong things. You're thinking the wrong things. You're desiring the wrong things. Let's get the wants and the desires changed and then see what I bring into your life. Because here's what I know, that if God does change those needs that, that you're having there, what God has in place of those things will be even better than you could have possibly imagined. And your container will not be able to hold everything because it'll be better. It'll be more fulfilling. It will be longer lasting than what you thought you needed in the first place. But you've got to submit yourself to that authority of Christ and receive the fullness of God so that he can work that out in your life. So recognizing this, with this in mind, we say, well, how much does God's grace multiply? Just how much does God's grace multiply? Well, John says we have all received grace upon grace. What does that mean, grace upon grace? Well, one commentator described it this way, and I put this in your notes this morning. This phrase denotes a perpetual and rapid succession of blessings as though there were no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt of the next. Now, I may be a heathen for using this analogy, because it is wrong on multiple levels. I, I, I confess that on the front end. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Particularly in the fact that we don't give something, we don't do something you know, to God and surrender to him in order to get something back. So just let me set that there. But this idea of grace upon grace flowing into us and, and multiplying as God continues to pour out his increasing blessings in our lives just conjures up this picture in my mind. And I tried to set it aside and say, Lord, I can't use that this week. That, that, just, that just doesn't fit. But I couldn't find anything else that fit this picture better. So just bear with me here that this, in my mind, is like a picture of a slot machine. I told you, it's wrong on many, many levels. But the only part of this picture that I want you to keep in your mind tied to this biblical truth is not the money and the gambling and all that. It's hitting the jackpot. That the bells and the whistles and the sirens goes off and you go, Woo, I won! 
I think that's what they do. I've never been. I've never done this. So I'm just assuming from what I've seen in the movies, and the movies are correct in what they do, that a person goes, oh, I win. And it just starts pouring these coins out. And they take their container, their little cup, and they go, look, I'm catching the coins. And then they just flow and they flow and they fall into the person's lap and then they fall off their lap into the floor. And I just see in my mind this person sitting there in this mound of, of coins that are coming forth from this machine. And it's still just spitting them out, spitting them out. And they're just buried under these coins from hitting the jackpot. I'm a heathen, I know, but that just in my mind is the picture of God just pouring out blessing upon blessing and wave after wave of blessing so much that we, we don't know where one stops and where the other ends as he pours his grace and his unmerited favor into our lives. And remember, this isn't, uh, what we receive isn't stuff and it's not some, you know, mumbo jumbo self-help type, you know, language of, oh, we can do it. We get God himself. God is what we receive. The goal of salvation is that God comes and lives and dwells within us and his fullness is available to us if we would just receive it. That's the picture. We get God himself. And so how do we get this fullness? Well, we do it by coming to God on his terms. We come to God on his terms. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't saying that the law is good or the law is bad and Jesus is good, nor is it saying that God wasn't gracious to people who were living under the law. You see, the law showed grace in that it revealed God's character. The law tells us God's righteous requirements. For coming to him. You see, there is within human beings, because it's part of how God created us, there's within us a sense and a desire to know and to seek after a higher power or a higher authority. All men, all mankind recognizes that there's a higher authority or power in our lives. Now, we've given that authority, we've given that power a lot of names. For some people, it's science. You know, science is it. If science can't prove it, it's not there, all this other stuff, blah, you know, they, 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 they uh, you know, denounce all that stuff. Others, for, for, it's knowledge. You know, it's knowledge, it's understanding, it's learning. For some people, this highest power, this highest authority is self. Ah, there's no God, there's no reason for all that stuff out there. You know, you are who you are, you make yourself what you make yourself, and when it's done, it's done. You are your own, you know, God, you're your own boss. You control your own destiny. But, you know, even by saying that self is the highest authority and power, they're actually saying what I just said, that we all have to name the highest power and authority in our lives. There's something within us that says, I've got to name that which is ultimate. And for, for them, they say, that which is ultimate is myself. So they're betraying the fact that there is this desire that's created within us to identify that which is the highest authority. Well, God comes in the Old Testament and says, I am the ultimate authority. I am the highest uh, that you should seek after, the, the greatest power in the universe. And this is what I want you to do to be able to follow after me. These are my requirements. I mean, and is it helpful for us to know what the requirements are, well, what God would expect of us? I mean, without that, we go, well, well, how do we come to God? How do we know him? How do we experience his presence? So God shows us and tells us what his requirements are through the law. But the law also reveals that we can't do it ourselves. We cannot do it on our own. Do any of you not have the book Radical by David Platt yet? I've been talking about it. So anybody not have a copy yet? The book? See some hands? A few there? Keep your hands on, let's see. All right, Christy, you're it. 
Come here. I'm going to give away a copy of Radical this morning. A couple of weeks ago, just come stand right here. A couple of weeks ago, I gave out some $100 bills. Well, the budget team asked me to scale that back because we're, <laughs> we're in some budget restraints. So no $100 bills this morning. But Christy, here's what I want you to do to get a free copy of Radical. I want you to stand right there, flat-footed, face the stage, no, on the floor, bottom floor. And I want you to jump with both feet to the top platform here. <laughs> she said, I can't do that. Well, hang on, just right, don't go anywhere just yet. I'm going to have you stand right here just a minute. You see, this is a picture of the law. God came and said, this is what's expected, this is what's required. And we look and we go, whew, I can't do that. That's a lot to be able to do. And we break the law, we fail, we can't make that jump, which is sin. But God's grace is still displayed to us in even the Old Testament we see throughout Scripture in that people would bring animal sacrifices and they would put their sins, they would confess and place their sins on the animal. That animal would die and that grace was credited forward to them, to Jesus Christ, when he would die upon the cross of Calvary and take the wrath for all sin upon himself. So it's forward-looking, kind of like a pre-sale item. You go and you pay for it before it's out. When it comes out, you get that. And so Jesus, their faith in the Old Testament, God's grace credited that forward to Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary. And in these verses, this is the second time that John tells us Jesus came to display grace and truth. And grace is the fact that Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And truth is that Jesus showed us that we can't do it for ourselves, that we need him. Right? So we have this mixture of, of God's grace that Jesus came, but the truth is we need him. And the truth that Jesus brings is to show us it's not about following the law and going through the motions. It's a change of heart, that we surrender our heart and our lives to God. So our heart is changed, not that we go through the motions. So I'm going to attempt something. Jesus fulfilled the law. So the thing about God is God doesn't just set the standard and say, all right, if you guys can make it up here, here I am. I'm waiting on you. Go ahead. Give it your best shot. What God did, according to John 1.14, John is that God came to earth in the form of a man and did that work for us. You ready for this? We're going to give it a shot. I came in to practice this week. I told Lori, I said, Lori, I'm going to the worship center. If I'm not back in 10 minutes, call 911. Tell them to pick me up in there, all right? Remember the eggs. Yeah, I've, I remember the eggs all week. I said, I'm like, Lord, oh, Lord. There you are. Thank you. Appreciate it. That feels good. Have one that worked. <laughs> Here's the thing. Jesus came and fulfilled the law, not just in the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Because here's the thing. People had followed the law for centuries and they said, I've done this. I've kept the commandments. I've done these things. God owes me salvation. I worked for it. I earned it. I am on my way. Jesus came and said, no, 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 you've misunderstood it from the beginning. The law has never been about just going through the motions and doing the actions. It's always been about a heart that surrendered to God. And Jesus showed us this in his life because he came and he told them that the law said, do not commit adultery. And some people said, yep, I haven't committed adultery. 
That's pretty cut and dry, whether or not you've committed adultery. They said, I've not committed adultery. Jesus said, but I tell you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And we go, what? Didn't commit adultery. Well, the bar just got raised a whole lot from the physical act of adultery to just thinking the thoughts in our mind, which is the same as committing adultery in our heart. So sin has always been an issue of the heart, not just of our actions. Jesus told the people, the law says do not murder. People went, got that one, kept that one, I'm in good shape, no problemo. And that's pretty cut and dry, again, whether or not you have committed that sin, broken that law or not. Then Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So now it's not just about murder. It's about not harboring anger, not insulting, not calling our brother names. Do you see how the bar got raised higher instead of lower? So basically, God through the law is not saying, jump from here to here. God's saying, I want you to stand both feet right there. I want you to jump into the baptistry. I mean, that's the standard of righteousness and of, and of holiness. And some of you could come in here and you could jump from there to right here. And you'll beat the pants off of them. You'll say, preacher got right there. Look at how far I got. You did a great job. You way missed the mark. There's no way. No way you're going to be able to do it on your own. That's the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to say, you can't do it. It's impossible. That's the truth. You can't do it. It's impossible to earn and work your way into righteousness, into a relationship with God. But the grace of Jesus Christ says, you don't have to. I did it for you. Jesus was perfect. He fulfilled the law, not just the letter of the law, the intent of the law. And he says, all you have to do is believe that I did this work for you. Receive the gift of salvation and, and surrender your life to me so I can use it for my glory. That's this, the ultimate display of grace and of truth. And then look at the irony found in this final challenge in, in John's prologue. He says, no one has ever seen God. Why not? Because we can't follow the law. We can't get close enough to God to see him because of our sin. God's holiness, his righteousness, his wrath against sin would strike us down. Now, there were a few instances in the Old Testament where people saw a portion or a glimpse of God. But God told them the reason they wouldn't see his full glory is because they would surely die. That no man could look upon his face or he would surely die. That's why they just got a glimpse or a portion of God in the Old Testament. So no one has ever seen God. So what does God do? He became a man. He came to us and lived his life and died in our place so that we might become his very own children. In verse 18, John says, The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John started his prologue in verse 1 by saying Jesus was God, and he ends in the same way by saying the only God who is at the Father's side. You know, if, if he weren't referring to different persons there, that sentence wouldn't make sense. But because he is referring to different persons, the one and only God, the Father, and Jesus, who is fully God, it makes perfect sense 
that Jesus came to make God known. To make God known. So think about what this means in your life. When we stop and say, what does God require of me? Ask Jesus. What does God require of me? Jesus said, that the greatest commandment is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love God. Have a relationship with him. Well, how do I do that? Jesus said, come to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You come to me and through me, and you can love God. And then the second commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So what does God require of me? Love God, love other people. That's pretty simple. That's a good starting point for us. And then we ask, we find ourselves in life saying, how should I respond in this situation? What should I do in this thing that I'm facing right now? Well, we can ask ourselves, and it's more than just a trite phrase that went through our culture to say, What would Jesus do in this situation? How would he handle himself? How would he handle people? What would he say? There were times in Jesus' life and his ministry, he was firm. He was was to the point. He was very strong in what he said. This is right. This is wrong. There's no question about it. But even in those moments of strength and his directness, Jesus Christ was love and mercy and compassion. He who is without sin cast the first stone and then go and sin no more, he tells the woman caught in adultery. He didn't deny sin and and sweep her sin under the rug. He he addressed it, but with mercy and compassion. How should I respond? What would Jesus do in this situation? What should I say to this person? How do I handle this relationship? Well, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit living within us would give us the words to say at the appropriate time. He said, well, what can I do to show this person God's love. Love them like Jesus did. Love them like Jesus would love them. And sometimes we say, well, I'm tired. I'm weak. I can't do it on my own. I'm not strong enough. And God says, you're exactly right. Through the Apostle Paul, he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Not because I'm strong, but because God is strong in me and in my weakness, he displays his power, which is infinitely greater than any I could muster on my own. Give it to Jesus. He'll give you his grace. He will see you through. When the apostles in the early church were first uh, persecuted for their faith, they prayed and they asked God to give them even greater boldness. And Acts chapter 4 verse 33 says this, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. And this is just after they've been beaten, they've been flogged, they've been imprisoned. They come out and God's grace was upon them. And they were even more bold, even greater, stronger witnesses than they had been before. God's grace supplies our every need. But sometimes we kind of think and say, well, does it ever run out? Does God ever get tired and frustrated and fed up that I keep coming to him that he says, no more. Enough is enough. Or we say, why would God care about my problems? He's got bigger issues on his plate, on his agenda, than dealing with with, with little old me. How big is your container? How big is your container? How much of you are you surrendering to God's presence and his power in your life? Because God's grace multiplies the more we know Jesus, the more we walk with him, the more we learn from him and begin to trust him, God's grace multiplies. 
us. God's grace multiplies the more we experience Jesus. When you step out in faith, when you obey and say, Lord, this is hard. I don't understand it. It's going to be difficult, but I'm going to do it. And you step out in faith. God blesses that. His grace multiplies and he pours it in and you say, wow, God did this. I'm going to try it again and I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to display his grace. I'm going to try and give some of this away, give some of this away for someone else. And it never diminishes in your own life. It only grows and strengthens. Kind of think of it this way. Do people basking in enjoying the light of the sun diminish or limit its power? I mean, think about it. We're out sunbathing people on the beach around the world. Does them being in the sun limit or diminish the power of the sun? No, not a bit. If you could take a candle and light 100,000 candles off of that one candle, how much would you diminish the light of the first candle? You wouldn't. Now, you would shorten it, obviously, but you're not going to diminish the light of that one candle that's burning by lighting all of those others. And that's the picture of God's grace. And I want to close this morning with the story of the incredible power of God's grace to transform a life and then use that life to tell others of his unlimited grace that's available to all people, that's available to you and me this morning. If you would only believe that Christ came and died as your substitute and then receive into his life the fullness of God's presence and then live in the fullness of that presence each and every day, by decreasing and diminishing yourself and allowing Christ to fill you up with his grace. In the 17th century, a young boy was born into a Christian home. And in the first six years of this young man's life, he heard the truths of the gospel and he was dearly loved. Sadly, though, this boy's parents died. And so this orphan boy went to live with his relatives where he was neglected, He was abused. He was ridiculed for his interest in Christ. And he really struggled in that situation. And and as soon as he was old enough, he fled to go join the Royal Navy for his country. And in the Navy, his life continued even more downhill. He frequently got into fights, oftentimes losing. He was abused by his shipmates, primarily because they disliked him, because of his attitude and just the spirit about him. He finally left the Navy and fled to Africa where he started working for a slave trader. And it was there that his life nearly reached its lowest point and he found himself at one time eating off of the floor on his hands and his knees. And he escaped that slave trader but found himself eventually working for another slave trader, although this time he was the first mate on the ship overseeing and supervising the slave trade instead of being a slave. And his sinfulness continued to flesh itself out in a number of situations until one point he stole the ship's whiskey and got so drunk that he fell overboard and nearly drowned before a shipmate harpooned him and pulled him back aboard the ship. As a result of that, he had a huge scar in his side for the rest of his life. He was just about as low as you can go. Then one day, during a huge storm off the coast of Scotland, after days and days of pumping water out of the boat, the young man began to remember and reflect upon the verses he had heard of his boy. And he was saved. He was transformed through Jesus Christ. He was given a new heart and a new status as one of God's very own children. And this man was so moved by the grace upon grace he had received from Jesus that he went on to become one of the greatest preachers of the 17th century. 
and a champion for ending the slave trade altogether. And as he reflected upon God's grace, John Newton wrote these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and this heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. And the last verse is actually anonymous, but most of us know it well. And it's such an appropriate ending to this idea of grace upon grace. That not only do we experience God's grace multiplying the more we know and experience Jesus on earth, but our greatest experience of God's grace will be living in his presence under his watch care and his provision for all of eternity. That's why we sing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. These first 18 verses of John introduce us to Jesus who existed with God, who's the same as God and who is God, how he came, he became flesh so that we might become the children of God.